Uh, we're going to be um, kind of not really all over the Bible, but we're covering a lot of ground today. And um, as we do that, you'll, you'll see we're covering not just one chapter, really a chapter and a half. And so the goal of today is really just to, um, to survey and introduce an idea to you. For some of you, you have uh, thought about this a lot. Some of you haven't. Others, you've thought about this and you are... Um, not sure what you think, or you know what you think, and you don't agree. Today we're talking about the supremacy of Christ over salvation. It's difficult for us to do a series on the supremacy of Christ and not talk about that. Of all the things that God has given us, his grace, his love, his mercy, all of this flows through this idea that he has come to seek and save the lost. And what we want to look at this morning is that Christ reigns supreme over that. He is sovereign over salvation. Now, the words that you may have heard before around that idea are words like predestination and election. We will see both of those words used this morning. But what I want you to see is that I think there are two great errors that we can make when it comes to the supremacy of Christ over salvation. One is to pretend that it does not exist. Because it's difficult for us to fathom, it's mysterious to us in many ways, and one of the questions you might have this morning that admittedly we probably won't really get into enough is, well, if God is sovereign, then how are we responsible? How does God's sovereignty play with free will? Um, We're not going to get into that this morning for a lot of reasons, but probably the biggest is, I don't know. (laughs) But yet it's true. Because we see the God of the Bible is a God who is sovereign, and yet we're not robots. Uh, We have autonomy. We still sin. God is not the author of sin. He allows sin, but he's not the author of sin. What do we do with that? It's difficult. So part of this is mysterious. But another part of this is that there's actually a bit of emotion that comes with words like predestination or election or the idea that God is sovereign in salvation. I'll just give you a couple of examples of this uh, in my own life. I'll never forget, I was um, doing camp ministry in college. I don't know how many of you did that over the summers, uh, served at a camp as a counselor. I did a couple summers at Sky Ranch in Van, Texas. My first summer, I was a counselor of high school students. My second summer, I was a counselor to the counselors. And that's when I discovered I probably shouldn't be um, around high school students much. Um, I'm much better with people my own age. And so my wife is the one who's really good with kids. Um, And so, look, I I met with this college, lots of college students uh, that I was really, my job was to pour into them as they poured into high school students. And I'll forget uh, meeting with a University of Arkansas student who was just struggling over this idea over predestination. And he was struggling because he heard other counselors talking about it. And he was deeply, deeply, um, he was deeply broken by it. Just how, how could a God predestine people to salvation and not others? Like that, that just seems not loving at all. And he was, he was deeply broken of it. And, and he said, how could they make something like that up? And I, I got the Bible out And I handed him Romans 8 and Romans 9. I said, just sit there and read it. I won't say anything. 
just read it and then tell me what you think. And he read the whole thing and he said, I don't like this. <laughs> so, so part of this, what I want you to see in his story is a couple things. One, how close is your theology to the God of the Bible? All of us have theology that's shaped by all kinds of things. And so often our theology is shaped by outside influences. How close is your theology, your view of God, how you think of him, what his attributes are, how close is that into what the Bible says? Every one of us has to reckon with what the Bible says about God. We have to. We have to. We can't pretend it's not there. But the other thing I want to show about his story is I think there's an equal error. And the, error, the equal error is this, that we'd be so focused on the one verse that says predestination, the one verse that says election, and miss the whole context. That in some ways, if we decide at the end of today that, yes, we believe that Christ reigns supreme over salvation, that we should be moved deeply, just like that University of Arkansas student was. That what we are saying is deeply moving, not only in God's deep love for us, but sometimes the difficulty that we have with the doctrine of predestination is because we love the lost, because we have friends who do not know Jesus, who do not have Christ, and our hearts break for them. And the doctrine of predestination does two things. One, it's very freeing. God is the author of salvation. You do not have the power to save the lost. But it's also frightening because ultimately we are saying we give up control. It's not up to us. And this morning what I want you to see is that's good news. The fact that salvation is not up to us is really good news. Because if it was, I believe that none of us would be saved. Ultimately, the doctrine of predestination is a doctrine about God's sovereign love for us. That he loved us while we were still sinners. While we have failed to love him, God has loved us with a powerful, transformational, saving love. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. I want you to see this. Everything I just said, I want you to hold me to this. I believe it's in the Bible. I'm not making this up. I'm going to try to stick as close to the Bible this morning as I can. And I want to begin this, this story in Romans 8. Romans 8. Some of you know Romans 8.28. Romans 8.28 is one of those great coffee cup, coffee mug verses. Uh, we know that the, for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Again, the danger of uh, coffee mug theology is that we don't look at the broader context. When, when he says all things work together for our good, what is he talking about? Well, he's saying all things work together for our good. What would be our good? Ultimately, our good is our salvation. That is what is our good. That is what God has for us. And so Romans 8, 28 then gives way to Romans 8, 29, and it's there on your sheet. He says, for those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What I want you to see here is an idea that Paul mentions in Philippians chapter 1, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. 
To say that God is sovereign over salvation, that Christ reigns supreme over salvation, is that what he starts, he will finish. So if you are predestined, Paul says, well, that means that you are going to be called. And if you're called, that means you are justified. And that if you are justified, you will be glorified. In other words, this is what's known as the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. The idea of predestined and then being called, being elected by God, being his chosen servant. The idea of being justified, the idea of one day being glorified with him in heaven. To say that God is sovereign means he is sovereign over all of these things. And that if you are predestined, Paul says, that means you're also called. If you're predestined, Paul says, that means you're also justified. If you're predestined, Paul says, that means you will also one day be glorified. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. He is pursuing you sovereignly, powerfully. And all of this, the context of Paul saying this, the doctrine of predestination is the idea of his sovereign love. I want you to look at this, the end of chapter 8. Again, if you think about the Bible, the Bible didn't originally have these little numbers and verses, didn't have the little um, headings in each section. This was meant to be read and understood verse by verse by verse. They all fit together. And so as he says in verse 30, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. Then he says this in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? What things? Well, predestination things. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right? The doctrine of predestination teaches us that if God is for us, like that, he's sovereignly for us, who can touch us? Who could be against us? Verse 32, who he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How he will not also graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God, uh, God's elect, his chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As we get into it, there's one thing that you hear this morning. The doctrine of predestination means this. There is nothing that can separate you from the sovereign love of Jesus Christ. Nothing. If you are in Christ, if you have placed your faith in his death and resurrection, and in his promises, which we'll talk about this morning, The doctrine of predestination says there's nothing that can separate you from his sovereign love. Predestination is a doctrine about his love and his grace. And it should lead us to be broken over the loss and it should ultimately lead us to worship him. So I want to look at this very briefly in four ways. Again, this is going to be a very broad look, an overview to get you talking at your tables. If you have questions about this, and and undoubtedly you might, feel free to come ask me. I'd be happy to answer what I can. Know that much of this is mysterious. If it wasn't mysterious, we would all believe the same thing about it. But it is. And so that's the doxology part. That's the worship part. That there are questions surrounding this that 
are difficult to answer. And so I want you to guard against um, philosophizing, making things up about God that seem convenient. I want you, as best you can this morning as you discuss in your tables, to stick to what the Bible says. Okay? So, let's stick to what the Bible says. First, I want you to look at this. I want you to see that predestination is about God's plan. His plan. I want you to look at Romans 9, verse 1. So all of this... He's talking about those who he predestined, he called, those he called, he justified, those he justified, he glorified, all to make this point, who can separate us from the love of Christ. All of this leads to Romans 9. He says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. What's he talking about? Everything we just said. Paul is saying, look, I'm speaking the truth. I'm speaking the truth. I'm not lying. Those who he predestined, he called. Those who called, he justified. Those who justified, he glorified. I'm not lying. I'm speaking the truth. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Verse 2, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God overall, blessed forever. Amen. I want you to notice two things about this. The first is this, that Paul is in anguish over the doctrine that he just explained. The idea that God is sovereign over salvation has led Paul to anguish. Why? Because his heart is broken over his kinsmen. If you remember, the Apostle Paul was not only a Roman citizen, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Before he came to Christ, before Christ came to him, he was Jewish. And so he's saying, look, my heart breaks over this because my people, my people to whom belongs the worship, my people to whom belongs the promises of God, my people to whom belong the patriarchs and the covenants and the law, my people have rejected Jesus. They came so close and yet they're so far away and my heart is in anguish. What I want you to see is Paul is so burdened by this that he says, I wish I could take their place. Can you imagine that? I wish I could take their place and they mine. If I could somehow give up my seat at the table so they could be at the table of the king, I would gladly do it. As you consider the doctrine of of predestination, I want you to ask yourself this question, does your heart break? Because I believe it should. You should be at once asking, God, why why not my lost friends? You should also be asking, God, why me? If this isn't up to me, if I'm undeserving, then then why me? That's what Paul's asking here. He's saying, I wish I could just give up my place, but I can't. And so his heart breaks. Believing in a God who is sovereign is not believing in a God who is aloof, cold, and calculated. We believe that our God is, yes, sovereign, but he, he also knows our anguish and our grief. He shares it with us. Does your heart break? Does your heart break over the lost as it did for Paul? 
The other thing I want you to notice is that as Paul's heart is breaking, he is recounting God's sovereign plan. He is, he is finding comfort and solace in the fact that God is in charge and he is not. That God has always had a plan. And I would argue that it, to, to believe in God at all, for him to be God means he must have a plan. That's part of his character, his nature. To be God is to be in charge, right? To be the supreme one, to be, right? To reign supreme, to be sovereign. I want to read you this. This is B.B. Uh, Warfield. Um, he says it this way. He says, even a deist must allow that God has a plan. So a deist is somebody who just believes that there is a God, doesn't necessarily believe in the Trinity. A deist must allow that God has a plan. If we believe in a personal God, then we believe in the immediate control by this personal God of the world he has made. We must believe in a plan underlying all that God does and therefore also in a plan of salvation. Do you believe that God is sovereign in charge? I think most people would say, if they, if they believe in God, they would say, yes. I mean, that's what makes him God. If we're going to say he is sovereign, he's in charge, he is the ruler of all things, then does that not also include salvation? Does that not also include his sovereignty over our salvation? That's Warfield's point. And we see this throughout the scriptures that um, God has a plan. It's often called in the Old Testament the counsel of the Lord. That he has this sovereign plan that's unfolding. Uh, Psalm 33 verse 11, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. That God has a plan and he is sovereignly working in all things to accomplish this plan. Uh, Proverbs 19, verse 21, Many are the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. All of us have plans, right? <laughs> You've got a lot of plans about what you're going to do later today. At the end of today, I've no doubt that most of those plans are probably going to change. God's plans do not change. That's what the Bible is teaching us. That's what Proverbs 19 is saying. Many of their plans of a man. We have lots of plans that come and go, plans that we change. God's plans never change because he's God and he accomplishes his plans through all things and that includes salvation. Second, I want to look at the promise of God. So to say that we believe in the supremacy of Christ over salvation, yes, that means he has a plan. It also means that he has a promise. To say that... Um, God has predestined salvation means that his promises are true. That when he makes a promise, he keeps his promise. We see this in verse 6, Romans 9 verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. So what is Paul doing there? He's saying, look, the prophets throughout the Old Testament prophesied the Christ, the Messiah, and yet the Jewish people, my people, have rejected them. Verse 6, he's saying, it's not as though the word of God has failed, though. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall be your offspring name. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted of his offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son." All right, real quickly, what on earth is Paul talking about? If you were confused, you just got more confused. What's he talking about? Well, as he's talking about God's sovereignty and salvation and what this means not just for the Jewish people, 
He's now helping us to see what this means for us. He's making a point, and it has really two important implications. That the promises of God, ultimately, his, his, the salvation of his people is not about an earthly birthright. It's not about the flesh. He makes a distinction between children of the flesh, this is verse 8, and children of the promise. You see, in those days, there were Jewish people who thought that they were in, that they were saved because they were Jewish by descent. That genealogically speaking, they could trace their heritage to Abraham. That would make them children of the flesh. Are you with me so far? So they said, look, I'm in. Uh, My dad was Jewish and his dad before him was Jewish and his dad before him was Jewish. And so look, it doesn't really matter if I follow the law. I'm a child of Abraham. And Paul's saying, hey, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. You, you can't just inherit salvation. That's not how the promises of God work. It's not how they ever work. Today, we, we do this too. Maybe not exactly by um, heritage, genealogically, but a lot of times we'll, we'll grow up in a Christian home We'll say, yeah, I, my, my family has always been Christians, and I grew up going to church, and so, yeah, I'm a Christian. And we never stop to think, do you actually believe this for yourself? That's what Paul's getting at. And he's making a distinction between children of the flesh, inherited faith, and, and children of the promise. Well, a child of the promise, he's saying, is, look, it's not enough that you can just trace your heritage to Abraham. The question is this, do you believe the promises of God? Have you trusted in his covenant promise in the same way that Abraham did? That's the question. Have you, have you answered the question in the garden that the serpent asked, did God really say? And do you answer that with a resounding yes and amen, he really said? Have you trusted in the promise? Ultimately, those who trust the promise, that is who salvation is for, Paul says. And this is what that means for us. That means that salvation is not just for the Jewish people, but it's for all those who place their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. He makes this point in the book of Galatians. That all those who place their their hope and trust in Christ are children of Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 7. Galatians 3 verse 26. He talks about how we are all sons and daughters of God through faith. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. That if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring and you are heirs according to promise. Brothers, this morning, you are an heir according to the promises of God, not by birthright, but because God in his sovereignty gave you the gift of faith to trust in his promise. And to say that he reigns supreme over our salvation says that his promises always come true. Always come true. The promise of redemption has come true for all those who place their faith and hope in Jesus. Third, to talk about the supremacy of Christ over salvation is to talk about his power. Let's talk about his power. Paul then shifts his rhetoric and he begins to anticipate the questions that we might have. And what I want you to see is you probably have some of these questions too, because these are natural human questions. That if, if we're going to be talking about God's sovereignty and salvation, we got some questions about that. 
right? And Paul's anticipating two, and the first comes in verse 14. He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Right? So to say that God is the one who seeks and saves the lost, and he is the one who chooses some to be saved and others are not chosen, if that's what we're saying, how is it fair? Maybe you've wondered that. Maybe you've asked that question. Maybe you're even asking in your minds now. Paul's asking it for us. Is there injustice then? If God's sovereign over salvation, if he's predestined me, how, how is that fair? Is there unjust, injustice on God's part? He says, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 16, it's a hard truth, isn't it? It does not depend on human will or exertion. Your salvation does not depend on human will or exertion, but on the sovereign mercy of God. That is a hard truth, and it's also a glorious truth. I want you to imagine at your tables in just a second, what if it was dependent on your own will? What if salvation really was up to you? What then? It's a glorious truth that it's up to his sovereign care and mercy. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. God is God and we are not. He is in charge, we are not. And the example he uses is the example of Pharaoh. Now, what's interesting about Pharaoh, if you know the story of the Exodus, the story when the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, the book of Exodus says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's Exodus 8, 15, okay? Or Exodus 9, 12. It tells us the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Exodus 8, 15 says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Are you with me? Exodus says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It also says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. So which is it? Is that an error in Scripture? Does that prove that the Bible cannot be trusted? No, I think it reveals something about the sovereignty of God and the freedom of humanity. It's a both and. And we see this in Romans chapter 1, that God's judgment is to give us up to our own lusts and desires, right? God gave Pharaoh up to his own lust for his own power. He allowed Pharaoh's heart to become hardened in its own sin. In the same way, God also comes after his people. He woos us with a sovereign hand, with his mercy, with his love. He calls after us. The Bible says over and over and over again that he loved us first. What does that mean? Before you loved him or failed to love him, God loved you. To say that he is sovereign over our salvation says that his love wins out. That his love is powerful. It's powerful. And it will seek us to the very end. And that's where we're going to end. Where we're going to end. The last thing I want to look at is how God loves his people. 
To believe in the supremacy of Christ over salvation is to believe in God's sovereign, sovereign love for his people. We see this as in verse 19 and following. Verse 19, Paul then asks another question. He says, You will say to me then, Who does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of some lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath to make his power known, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared? There we go. Beforehand for glory. And even whom he is called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. He asked a string of questions, again, to help us to recognize that he is the creator. We are the creature. He is the sovereign. We are his subjects, right? He is in charge. We are not. Who are we to demand from him? And yet, in his mercy, he has come down to us. He has come down to us. And the example he gives is from the prophet Hosea. It's where we're going to end this morning. Verses 25 and 26. He then quotes Hosea of all places, talking about this big, mighty God, this God who makes some for wrath and some for mercy, this big, mighty God whom you may not question. All of this leads to Hosea, a prophet who is commanded by God to love a prostitute to marry her and love her and pursue her even though she was unfaithful to him. What is predestination all about? What is God's sovereign love and care all about? What is his sovereignty over the gospel all about? It's about a God who would stop at nothing to save his people. That though we are like prostitutes, just like Gomer, though we have failed to love him, though we have been unfaithful time and time again, to say that God reigns supreme over our salvation is to say that he sent his son Jesus Christ to be the bridegroom. Down to us, the sovereign God came down to us. He took on our flesh. He knew our pain and our sorrow. And this bridegroom, Jesus Christ, loved us even when we failed to love him. He loved us first. And he loved us so much that while we're, we were still sinners, he died for us. To say that God reigns supreme over salvation is to say that he reigns supreme over the cross. He willingly laid his life down and he rose again on the third day, not because you deserve it, but because he loves you. And because his grace and his love always wins. Let me pray for you and send you to your table. Lord, I pray as we talk about these things that are too high for us. These are too lofty for us. Who are we to say to the potter, why have you done it this way? And yet that's in us and we're wrestling. And as we read these things, we, our hearts, just like the Apostle Paul's, we, we grieve so we pray in that, in that place of grieving that you would overwhelm us with your, your goodness, with your care, with your mercy, and your sovereignty.
that you would give us a greater vision of your majesty and splendor, and that ultimately all of this would lead us to a place of worship and lead us to a place of a greater appreciation for your sovereign love for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.